and the theme is hope. And it, I believe, is, uh, it's just God-ordained that we're ending our series in the book of Amos on this day because chapter 9 finally gets to the hopeful part of the prophet's proclamation to Israel. For the past couple months, we've been exploring this often neglected Old Testament book. Uh, it's by one of the minor prophets. His name was Amos. He a very ordinary man. God called him. He was not a prophet. He was a shepherd. He was a caretaker of sycamore trees. He was from not Jerusalem, but uh, the area of Israel that we would call Judah, and a little town called Tekoa, which was not far from Jerusalem, but probably even closer to where Jesus was born, Bethlehem. And God called Amos, this ordinary guy, just like you and me. He was living a very obscure life, a very average life. And maybe you feel that way this morning, but I've got nothing to offer. Well, you do have something to offer. And if nothing else, I hope that you've learned from going through Amos that Amos didn't come from a line of long prophets or other great men. He was just going about his life, doing what he needed to do under the law at that time. And God called him to a very unique role. And it should remind all of us that God often calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God calls ordinary people like you and me to do extraordinary things by the power of the Holy Spirit that abides in us. And in Amos's life, he was assigned the task of proclaiming judgment, the judgment that God was about to bring to Israel. He was supposed to warn them of this up, upcoming calamity and to tell them, man, if you don't get your act together, if you don't repent, if you don't align yourself with God, there's going to be serious consequences. And in this series, we've seen that God is full of grace. Amen? God is full of love. God is full of compassion. He gives warning after warning after warning after warning. He is so patient, but the people remain stiff-necked. They remain rebellious. Even though they kind of play with religion, and we've studied that, they were um, doing the things that look good on the outside, but it was all an act. It was all a show. And Amos's message should bring to us today clarity and conviction. We need to return to God before it's too late. Return to God before it's too late. And even though Amos lived eight centuries, 800 years before the birth of Jesus, this message is so applicable to us today. And it's calling you as an individual and me as an individual to turn from our selfishness, turn from our sin, turn from our religiosity before it's too late and enter into a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now we've gone through pretty much chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 9 today. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's going to start out real ugly, but you're used to that, right? You're used to the doom and gloom. But here's the good news. On this first Sunday of Advent, at the end of the book, Amos was given this glimpse of a day that was coming. A day that will knock your socks off. 
Many of us are looking for that second coming of Christ. Not the first coming when he came as a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes. But when he comes victoriously, there are better days ahead. And these words were really intended to encourage the faithful remnant of Israel and Judah who would rise up through the great difficulty of that day. Amos chapter 9, why don't you stand, stretch your legs, and uh, change your position, but also out of respect for God's word, we're reading beginning of verse 1. Then I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the temple columns so that the foundations will shake. Bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill with the sword those who survive. No one will escape. Well, that's really encouraging, isn't it? Verse 2 says, man, even if they dig down to the place of the dead, Sheol at that time, we could say hell during this time of the new covenant, even if they dig down to the place of the dead, I will reach them. I'll pull them up. Even if they climb up to the heavens, I'll bring them down. Even if they hide at the very top of Mount Carmel, I will search them out and capture them. Even if they hide at the bottom of the ocean, I'll send the sea serpent. Is that the kraken, maybe? I, I don't know. After them, to bite them. Even if their enemies drive them into exile, I will command the sword to kill them there. I am determined to bring disaster upon them and not to help them. Now remember, this is after years and years and multiple warnings. The Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, touches the land and it melts. And all its people mourn. And the ground rises like the Nile River at flood time. And then it sinks again. And the Lord's home reaches up to the heaven, and its foundation is on the earth. And he draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. Are you Israelites? Are you Americans? Are you at First Assembly Wenatchee this morning more important to me than the Ethiopians? Asked the Lord. I brought Israel out of Egypt just as he's brought you, friends, out of your sin, out of your old way of life. He's brought you out. But I also brought the Philistines from Crete, and I led the Armenians out of Kerr. I, the sovereign Lord, am watching the sinful nature of Israel. I'll destroy it from the face of the earth, but I will never completely destroy the family of Israel, says the Lord. Notice there's always a small group of people, kind of the biblical term we like to throw around is the remnant. I don't like that term because it creates a great pride in people. Oh, I'm part of the remnant. Well, la-dee-da. <laughs> but, but I do want you to realize that's what it's talking about, okay? There's a, a small group, those who remain faithful, those who remain anchored in Jesus, says he'll never completely destroy that family. <laughs> Verse 9, For I'll give the command and will shake Israel along with the other nations. As grain is shaken in a sieve, yet no one, no, yet 
not one true kernel will be lost. But all the sinners will die by the sword. All those who say nothing bad will happen to us. In that day, here it comes. Here's the hopeful part. Here's the promise of restoration. In that day, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He'll do these things. The time will come. See, that's what Advent's all about. In the Old Testament, they were waiting for the birth of the Messiah. We're waiting for the second coming of the Messiah. And the time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They'll never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Aren't you glad for the hope we have in Jesus? Amen. All of you except the West family can be seated right now. I want to thank this family for coming in yesterday. The entire family, all eight of them. I'm not sure how much help Maverick was. And they decorated. One family wanted to serve you and decorated our auditorium. Thank you. Thank you so much. We got some new trees out in the lobby. It's looking good. Thank you. Nathan, thank you, Rachel, and all your children who are part of that project. Have you ever noticed when you're driving, you never hold the steering wheel perfectly still? You know, you're always making little adjustments. You might hit a pothole and you got to turn it back. But just in the course, maybe you're out of alignment a little bit. Maybe the road is a little bigger. You're always, when you are driving a car, you're always making these little corrections. And I give you that illustration to say that in life, you and I need to always be making mid-course corrections in our walk with Jesus. Little adjustments we need to make. And it's time to ask ourselves, is the trajectory of our life today heading toward victory, as we just read, or heading toward defeat, like we have read the last five weeks. See, we're going to wrap everything up today. Amos 9 gives us one last opportunity for mid-course directions. Now he's speaking to the people of Israel. And he's saying, yeah, you need to make a mid-course direction, correction, and you need to change the direction of your life. And he basically gives them these two truths that leads them to evaluate their life. And they are just as truthful today as they were back then. Here it is. Life apart from God will end in tragedy. It's a fact. Life apart from God will end in tragedy, but life with God will lead to triumph. 
There it is. Boy, you need to write that down. You need to remember that. Because, friends, that's truth. That is God's truth right there. Life apart from him is going to end in tragedy of some kind for you. But life with God, no matter if you go through some difficult times, some sad times, some painful times, even though things don't work out the way you want or prayers aren't answered, Friends, in the end, if you're aligned with God, if you're walking with God, your life's going to end in triumph. Praise God. Man, it would benefit us to look at that unchanging biblical principle for just a minute and consider how are we living? Are we pursuing God or do we need to make some mid-course corrections right now in light of these warnings? See, the first truth of that statement is life apart from God will end in tragedy. Remember, the first eight chapters of Amos have clearly communicated God was unhappy with the way they were living. And you know something? Humanity has not changed much. We're selfish and greedy just like Adam and Eve. Even today, instead of living life with God, we are more prone to choose life apart from him, to do what benefits us, what feels good, what seems prudent for the time. I mean, that was the original sin of the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Adam and Eve were tempted to think that they could live on their own, make their own decisions, and we're kind of like that. The Bible states it in Isaiah chapter 53, if you're taking notes, Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, no exception, all of us. And instead of following God and living in relationship with him, we're often drawn by this myriad of temptations. And in short, we often choose to live life apart from him. And as we've seen in Amos's day, they continued their practices of temple worship. They did all the right things. They gave tithes. They gave offerings. They kept all the various feasts and festivals. But God told them clearly, remember, <laughs> your religious activities don't mean anything to me unless you do them out of a heart that is in total submission and commitment to me. And he's saying the same thing. Maybe you have come to church for 20 years and you, and you do all the right things. But I want to ask you this morning, are you living in alignment with God and his principles? Do you have that personal relationship with God? Do you know about him or do you know him? Man, I need to tell you, there are many people today who are entering into houses of worship, not just here, but all over, that, that think that they're living life with God. But really, all it is is another activity that represents a means to an end. They simply see God as a way to get other things. Prosperity, however you want to define that. And that's what the Israelites were doing. They saw a a way of getting God's benefits. Not a way of walking in fellowship with God. 
And living apart from God, as we learned, to them involved a couple things. First, they weren't hearing from him. That's why I want all of you to take one of these devotionals. I want you to hear from God. Man, if you're not picking up your Bible every day, please, please make that a habit. Because otherwise, you're not hearing from God. We need to hear from God. God wants to speak to us. When we live a life apart from God, essentially, by our actions, we're saying, I don't need to hear from you. I got this, God. I, I got to figure it out. I can do it myself. Man, despite all their celebrations, their feasts and festivals and offerings and all that, remember what we were told in Amos chapter 3, verse 10? <laughs> Let me remind you. It says the people of Israel did not know how to live right. NLT says my people have forgotten how to do right. Is that amazing that you can do all the right things and still not be living in the way that God wants you to? It says they stored up violence against the vulnerable. They somehow had closed their heart to the poor and the needy. They were calloused against the vulnerable. And God sent Amos to his people who were far away from him at that time and warned them, man, if you don't straighten up and walk with me and do the right things, you will end up in a disastrous situation because... Life apart from God never has a good ending. Never. So in the middle of their security, remember, they were very prosperous. God told them there's a day coming. And for the Israelites, we know, because we can look back historically, about 40 years after Amos gave this message, we know the Babylonian Empire came, destroyed the entire land. They took the people into slavery. Israel was left as a wasteland. That happened. That was fulfilled. But we also see in our text today that God wants to teach us about another coming day. So three things that I want us to look at that happened in the, the time that Amos was writing this, but truths that also apply to where we are entering this Advent season in 2021. Because just as Israel was judged we too will eventually face judgment. Number one, the tragedy that is about to come is inevitable. How many times did Amos warn them? How many times have we said in services where there's been prophecies or tongues and interpretations or teachings or preaching about the coming of the Lord, getting yourself right, that the Lord was coming soon. And of course, we always want to put that in perspective. Oh, that must be by the end of the year. Or that must be in the... Remember, God does not live in our time element. The only reason God recognizes seven days and 24-hour days and 365-day years is so he better understands the boxes we put ourselves in. God does not live in time. The tragedy is inevitable. We read in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, 
The time is surely coming. The time is surely coming. Mark it down, friends. I can't tell you the day or the hour, but it's ironclad. God said it, and it's going to happen. It is inevitable. The day is coming. It's already on the Father's calendar. And Amos was telling the people the only way to avoid judgment on that day is to repent and walk with me. How often he said, remember, seek me and live. And you that have followed the Lord understand that, man, that life begins now. We don't have to wait till the end to have life. Jesus came that we might have abundant life here and now. Our eternity with God begins the moment we ask him into our heart. Now, you might still be wondering, well, yeah, but that's Amos, that's Old Testament. I just don't get it. Well, how about if I tell you what Paul says in Acts chapter 17? Because it parallels Amos' words. Paul reminds us, Acts 17.31, he has set a day for judging the world with justice. Got that? He has set a day for judging the world with justice. We see all sorts of injustices happen in our country, in our world. We have injustices happen to ourselves. And we think, man, how long is this going to go on? I don't know, but I do know that it is inevitable, friends. There's a day coming for justice. It's already on God's calendar. God was telling us, man, the only way to avoid that judgment is to repent. Seek me and live. The second thing I want you to notice is this day is not just inevitable, it's inescapable. It's inescapable. Sometimes you and I are, well, we're kind of funny people and we like to escape sometimes. We, we don't want to be in a certain social situation because so-and-so might be there and we're uncomfortable, so we escape. We do those kind of things. We escape within our own, our own mind. But friends, this tragedy that we've learned about is not only inevitable, it is inescapable. And in this chapter that we just read, Amos 9, we begin to get an idea of what that judgment would look like. <laughs> Remember in verse 1 what it says here? To strike the tops of the pillars of the temple so hard that the foundations or thresholds will shake. Now the picture here is that God would impact every single element of Israel's life from the top down. I like the word the English Standard Version uses. And I'd encourage you when you're doing Bible study, maybe not for devotional reading, but when you're really doing Bible study, use multiple translations of the Bible because it'll help you have a, a broader grasp of the real meaning. In the ESV, the translators use the word capitals. Capitals which in Hebrew refers to what? Their places of authority. Just like now. What is our state capital? It's Olympia. That's the place of authority for Washington State. And so I like that 
translation of that word, that Hebrew word that the ESV uses, capitals. Because we know that God's going to destroy the political systems of Amos's day, and he will destroy the political systems of our day. It also includes not just governmental authority, but religious authority. Now, I know God has set pastors and teachers and prophets and apostles and evangelists. I understand all that. But someday, all that will be destroyed. It says here, the temples themselves, as beautiful as our edifices are, <laughs> they, it's just a place for us to gather to worship God. That's all it is. The tragedy is inescapable, and people will try to run from it, just like we try to run from uncomfortable situations. But what is God's response? You can dig deep to Sheol, and I'm going to find you. You can run up to the top of the highest mountain. You can be on top of Mount Rainier, and I'm going to find you. See, it's important for us to understand that if we're under the wrath of God, if we are his enemy because we're living apart from him, nothing can separate you from his wrath. You're not going to escape. But listen, brothers and sisters of mine, who have found forgiveness, who have found new life through faith in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, because of Christ, that also means that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's yours in Christ Jesus. That's the great exchange. It's unscapable. I'm glad that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I'd hate to be on the other side. Read Romans 8, 28 and 29 and read Romans 8, 31, and rich scriptures that talk about nothing. If you're walking in alignment with God, nothing can separate you. No place you can go that you won't find God's love and grace because of Jesus. Bless his name. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. Thirdly, this tragedy is going to be insurmountable insurmountable, nothing you can do about it. Even though God spoke clearly to the people through Amos, they still didn't believe. We read that in verse number 10 of our text today. But all the sinners will die by the sword, all those who say nothing bad will happen to us. The eternal optimist, nothing bad will happen. See, sometimes God warns us and we get so lost in grace that we think, oh, no, nothing bad's going to happen to us. God's love, God's forgiveness. Is... Friends, you've got to remember we're in a spiritual warfare. There's a God who loves us that's fighting for us, and at the same time, there is an enemy, Satan himself, that is out to kill, rob, steal, and destroy and it's up to us to walk in alignment with God and let the Holy Spirit be our victor. There are people who say, oh, nothing bad's going to happen. We hear that even today. <laughs> oh, disaster is not really coming on us. Man, we have great houses. We have wall cities. We have all the security we need. We feel safe from anything that might come our way. Sounds like a lot of people that we deal with today 
That's totally different than the hope that we have in Jesus. See, I can say, everything's going to be fine, friends, if you keep your eyes and faith in Jesus. And that's true. But that's a lot different than just saying, oh, nothing bad's going to happen. Man, we can tell people of coming calamity for those who, you know, might not be walking with God. And, and you know, you've dealt with non-believers. A lot of them say, you know, I'm fine. My life's good. Yeah. I'll figure out later what to say if there really is a God. And it's because they're blinded by the enemy. God's view in this is all very clear. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Even if their enemies drive them into exile, I'll command the sword to kill them. I'm determined to bring disaster upon them. The Lord of heaven's armies touches the land and melts, and all its people mourn. The ground rises like the Nile River at flood time, and then it sinks again. God's really angry right there. <laughs> now, we've got to understand, why did God eventually become so angry that he would say such harsh things. I want you to think about this for a moment. God created the world. Every good and perfect gift is from God. He gave us everything we needed to enjoy. If you wake up tomorrow morning, just remember that breath of life is a gift of God. Your loved ones, the food we have, the warmth we have, the beauty of the one actually valid, everything, the joy that we experience, those are all gifts from God. Yet there are people who will receive those gifts and say, thank you for the gift, but I don't want anything to do with you. Man. That's heartbreaking. Can you imagine giving someone a gift, putting a lot of work and effort into a wonderful, wonderful gift that you were going to bless someone with? And they take the gift and they walk away. They don't want a relationship with you. They don't want to say thanks. They, don't want to, they just want the gift. I think sometimes that's how God feels. He looks at us and he sees us enjoying all these gifts. Never, friends, seek the gifts above the giver of the gifts. Never. Come to the point of your spiritual maturity that even if you don't have the gifts, you'll still walk with the giver of the gifts. <laughs> See, for a while, God's patient for a season. We understand that. He gives us every opportunity to repent and come back to him. We know that in 2 Peter chapter 3, it's very clear. God would have none to perish. In fact, let me read that. 2 Peter 3, uh, 9 and 10. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. And then verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. 
And the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. And the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Maybe today you're living apart from God. As Amos and Paul have said through their words, the life you're living is going to lead to destruction, to tragedy. But in the face of all the storm clouds, of all the doom and gloom that we've read about for eight and a half chapters, we now find this ray of sunshine. Because in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, it says, In that day I will restore the fallen house of Israel. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins I will rebuild it and restore it to its former glory. In other words, something new is going to happen. And again, that's what Advent. Advent means coming. That's what it means, coming. In this Advent season, we're celebrating the coming of Christ. But friends, we can also celebrate that there is another day coming where he will restore. Justice will be done. Damage will be repaired. Something good is going to replace calamity. Something great is going to come. Because that leads me to that second truth of that quote that I showed you earlier. Life with God always ends in triumph. Remember, life without God will end in tragedy. But just as sure, mark my words, life with God will end in triumph for all of us. Hallelujah. There are going to be some who are going to experience tragedy. And Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14, you can look that up later, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He said, you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction. <laughs> Yet there's going to be this smaller group that remains faithful, whose lives are going to end in triumph. They will not experience the wrath of God. They're going to experience the love of God. And friends, I want to be part of that group. But it's up to me. The invitation's there, <laughs> but I have to repent. I have to make sure that as I'm driving over Stephen's Pass and making sure that I'm making those little corrections so that I'm in my lane between the fog lines, in my spiritual life, I have to make those mid-course corrections. Say, Jerry, is there anything that has snuck into your life the last 30 days? Maybe a little bit of pride or a little bit of gossip or a little bit of this or that. Is there something you've picked up that is not a good habit? I'm thinking about repent like getting saved again. I'm talking about mid-course corrections. Because I realize that most all of us here have accepted Christ. Now, if you're here and you haven't, I am so glad you're here. And I just encourage you. To ask Jesus to come into your heart today. Give him your life so that your life will end in triumph. But for the most part, we've already done that. But that doesn't mean that you and I don't need to make mid-course corrections. 
It is amazing. You do not want to be in an airplane from Seattle to New York and just be two degrees off. You might think, oh, it's just two degrees, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, you'll think that when you end up in Miami. And you think, Miami? I thought I was going to New York. Mid-course corrections are so important for all of us. In verses 13 to 15, I just want to make note here, he discusses their agriculture. I was thinking about that this week. He says there's going to be basically a perpetual time of harvest. Now, we know now that, um, you know, farmers plant their seed in the spring, and then the harvest comes in the fall. But it says here they're going to be so abundantly blessed, the planter is going to run into the harvester. They're going to be sowing seeds at the same time they're harvesting. Now, that doesn't usually happen. You know, planters plant in the spring, harvesters harvest in the fall. But can you imagine the abundance being so great that the sower and the reaper are going to be running into each other? That's productivity. That's favor. <laughs> Verse 13, I'm going to close with this. The time will come. Or the days will come. Whatever your translation, uh, however it handles that particular verse, it's the same meaning. Verse 13 of chapter 9 of Amos. The time will come. That means they weren't there yet. That means we're not there yet. <laughs> Someday Jesus will rule and reign. Hopefully he is in your life. But he's not doing that globally right now. But the time will come. They weren't there yet. We're not there yet. We're living in this Advent season just the way they were living in the Advent season. This remnant, this small group of people had to live in the present with the future in mind. And that's my admonition to all of us. We need to live in the present. But we need to always have the future in mind. Living in the light of a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. But that promise brings us hope. It impacts the way we live our life now. It affects the way we worship now. It affects the way we make decisions now. It affects the way that we treat other people now. Because in short, because of the promise of the future, we live in the obedience of God. We live in that relationship with him. See, there's a connection there. We're the people, aren't we, who are living in the present with the hope of tomorrow? Just like they were. So you and I need to be ordering our lives not for what we gain in the present here on earth, but because of that great future that Jesus has promised. And it's clear that God has something great to do. There's different ways you can interpret any kind of prophetic uh, scripture. And I've taught you in the past, there is a way of, of looking at scripture. Hermeneutics is a study of scripture. And it's called double value. Which means that a verse can be applicable then, but also applicable later on. It's got double value. 
Because I know some of you might be a step ahead of me in thinking, well, but you just said destruction's already come to them. Within 40 years, the Babylonians took over. So that prophecy has already been fulfilled. Well, that's true. But that same prophecy can apply to future Israel, can apply to the future people of God. I know that because we went through Revelation here a few years ago on Wednesday night, and the book of Revelation says the same thing, that there's going to be a future time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, such as that the nation of Israel, not geographically, but ethnic Israel, will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and worship him. That's promised in Revelation. And friends, it's true. The church has already begun to rebuild things that have been destroyed. I mean, we really are in some ways living in a bumper crop harvest. More people coming to the Lord now than at any other time. The technology we have to reach indigenous people in villages in Africa and Asia with the internet and other things is just absolutely incredible. The Bible says what the church is harvesting will outnumber the sands of the sea. And in some ways, it's being fulfilled today. Pew Research Center estimates there were approximately 600 million Christians worldwide in 1910, before any of us were around. But think of that, 600 million Christians. They estimate today there are more than 2.2 billion Christians on the face of the earth. Think of that. In our little denomination of the Assemblies of God, we're just one sand on the big beach of God's, you know, uh, family. But in the Assemblies of God alone, someone accepts Christ on the average every 62 seconds just through the outreaches of the assemblies of God. So can we not say that the people whom God has called out of the darkness into his marvelous light, we're living some of this now, even though we're looking forward to the time that Jesus comes back. Bottom line, here it is. First thing I told you earlier, we've got to remember, (laughs) life apart from God will end in tragedy, but life with God will end in triumph. As we conclude our series, I want you to think of three W's. This could be a whole different sermon, but it's not. It's a time of reflection for you. And I just want to take three or four minutes and Our worship team's going to come back. But I want you personally to ask yourself these three questions. And they all start with W. Are you too much like the world? Is there something in your life that looks more like the world than it does the church? We need to test ourselves today, friends. It's part of this repentance process. 
world. The second W, his word. Are you listening to his word? Are you obeying his word? Remember the people in Amos' day were not listening. They weren't hearing the roar of the lion. And because of that, they lost opportunity to be saved. Are you listening to what the Holy Spirit's telling you through his word? And thirdly, I just want you in a, a re- reflective manner to ask yourself, am I walking in his ways? Am I loving? Am I kind? Am I patient? Do I compromise the truth? Do I call sin what it is? Do I share my faith? Over and over again, Amos invites us to seek God and live. I invite you to ask yourself today, are you too much like the world? Are you listening to God? Are you walking in his way? If you're not, all I have to offer you, unfortunately, is tragedy, according to God's word. But if you accept Christ as your Savior, if you as Christians make those mid-course correct or mid-course corrections, and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can say, oh man, we're not afraid of the future. There's no fear. We have hope because someday we'll see our Savior face to face. I will not experience his wrath. I'll experience his love. Bow your head as the worship team just begins to play behind us. I want you right now to make where you are an altar of prayer. And I want to challenge you with those three questions. Have you allowed the world in any way to creep into your life? Are you being obedient? Are you listening to the word of God? And then are you walking in his ways?